let's pray now before we get into Revelation again. So, Lord, we thank you uh, for your words. We thank you for this message straight from your book. Father, I pray that you would help us to, uh, to understand this wonderful book and your word a little bit better today, that it might become less intimidating uh, for some. And uh, just pray that you would be in this, that my words would be your words. We give you thanks and praise, and we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, dear. I left the... Uh, Right. So just to kind of recap from last week, the big idea was simply this, that Jesus is uh, commending the, the church in Ephesus for pursuing truth, but he wants them to do it out of love, right? They've gotten a little hard, you know, in, in this uh, constant battle for truth. And so he's telling them you, need, you can't forget that there's a love component to this as well. Some of the insights we pulled from it, um, well, first of all, that it's important that we continue to do that, that we continue to contend for the truth, right? Because there's a lot of cultural pressure, there's a lot of um, organizations, people, ideas that would try to push you know, the basics of Christianity out, that would try to compromise that, and so it's really important that, it, especially in this day and age, you know, it's sort of cliche to talk about history repeating itself, but really that's what we're seeing. I mean, we're seeing ideas in our culture now that are trying to push Christianity out just as they were in Ephesus in their day. So it's important that we continue to be the ones fighting for the truth. Second, um, Jesus reminds us that we need to love, you know, through all of that, that we can't start hating those people that maybe uh, espousing something other than what we believe. We're still called to love them. And then finally, if you have lost that love and feeling, then it's time for some repentance. Um, so that, you know, you've got to understand that if you, have, you find yourself in that position to where you're not loving anymore, then you need to turn from that and go back towards um, love. So that is um, from last week. So this week we're looking at, uh, we're still in chapter 2, and we're going to look at um, the part of the letter that goes to the, the town or city of Smyrna. And so of the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation uh, in this second and third chapter, there are only two that receive all praise and no blame, or all encouragement and no accusation, and that's Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia. So those two are unique in that sense. Um, now the thing that's kind of interesting about uh, Smyrna is that it contains fewer of the Old Testament allusions than some of the other letters. So there's not as much from the Old Testament in these verses uh, that were part of what uh, Jesus was saying to, uh, to the, the folks of Smyrna. The, inter the other interesting thing is it's the only one of the seven cities that still exists. It's now called Izmir, 
in Turkey, but it is the ancient city of Smyrna. Uh, it was a harbor city, just like Ephesus. It's located about 35 to 40 miles or so from Ephesus, just up the coast, as you can see, and would be the second stop if someone were traveling in that kind of counterclockwise loop uh, to visit all of the churches. Now, uh, one interesting thing, and I don't know that this is proven, was that Smyrna claimed to be the birthplace of the great epic poet Homer. <laughs> oh, wait, that's the wrong Homer. There we go. Smyrna, I know, it's a cheap laugh. But it entertains me, see, and so. And, and most of you laughed, so, you know, it did work. So there is that, too. Um, now, there were a couple of characteristics that uh, sort of defined the city of Smyrna as it related to Christianity. Uh, it maintained, well, first of all, it maintained this very strong tie to Rome, okay? And it was the first uh, of the cities to actually build a temple to the goddess Roma. So there was this very, very strong connection to Rome. And so uh, out of that really developed these two characteristics that were problematic for the Christians there. The first of all was that because of this strong affiliation with Rome, the citizens there were very devoted to this emperor cult, right? The worship of the emperor, okay? So they had, um, there was a lot of that going on. And then second, there was a fairly large population of, of Jews in the city that were hostile to Christians, okay? Um, one scholar noted that according to an estimation, the total population of the Roman Empire in the late first century was probably about 60 million, uh, of which 5 million were Jews and 50,000 were Christians. So that gives you some perspective on the numbers. Um, and this whole Jewish condemnation of Christians really continued on into the second century. Um, you may have heard of a disciple named Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was an apostle of John, and he was bishop of Smyrna, uh, and he was martyred for his faith. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. So now, getting into the text. <clears throat> Start off with Revelation chapter 2. This is verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. <clears throat> Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now let's break that down a little bit and look at a few of these verses individually. So this one, this is really very similar. Um, once again, we see a description of Jesus or God from the very first part of this prophecy that we saw in chapter 1. And here he is, it's the words of him who is the first and the last. 
And this, is, this really is describing someone who's victorious over death, right? They were there before and they were there after everything. And so, in a manner of speaking, he's telling the Christians there that even though you're facing persecution, uh, I, Jesus, am going to sustain you through all of it. Then he goes on to say, I know your afflictions and your poverty, and yet you are rich. And so I think this linking together of affliction and poverty just is suggesting that there was a pretty close connection between the two, right? Uh, this was a very antagonistic environment, as we talked about a moment ago. Uh, and the Christians in Smyrna are experiencing economic persecution, loss of income and jobs, destruction of property, and, and legal trouble, all resulting in poverty. And this, it was kind of interesting because, you know, we talk about persecution in various forms in the, uh, you know, against Christians in our world. But rarely, at least, did I think of it in terms of economics, right? You normally think of someone being stoned or burned or cut up or, you know, whatever horrible thing uh, describes persecution to you. But sometimes it's just as simple as freezing somebody out and not allowing them to participate and, and actually make a living. And so some of what could have been going on here, um, there were local trade guilds that were part of the, uh, the economy at that point. And that's where you would go to, pr to get work. But they also promoted all these pagan rituals and practices and things like that. And so Christians wouldn't necessarily associate with that. Um, they may also have had their property confiscated. There may have been vandalism going on. You know, we don't really know, other than the fact that they were kind of frozen out of, of being able to do trade and, and to make a living, and so therefore they, were, they ended up in poverty. And so affliction and poverty are kind of combined in that sense. But yet Jesus tells them that in spite of their material poverty, Jesus says, but you're spiritually rich. And it's in exact contrast to what he's going to tell the church at Laodicea. He tells them, you're materially rich, but you're spiritually poor. So that's for another day. <clears throat> now, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, the interesting thing here is that Jews at, that, at this point in the Roman Empire were exempt from emperor worship. And the reason for that was that it was this ancient monotheistic religion. And so the Romans were sort of okay with that, you know, continuing. Because it had been around for a long time. And I guess they figured, you know, with five million Jews, that could cause more problems than uh, forcing them to actually worship the emperor. So they said, it's okay, you guys can continue. And so throughout a lot of the first century, the Christians kind of fell under that category. They were like, you know, sort of a sub-Jewish religion. And so they were sort of covered by that um, dictate that it was okay for the Jews. Well, that all changed with Nero when Nero became emperor in the mid-60s. And so now all of a sudden, the authorities are starting to view Christianity in a different light. And they're saying, well, that's, we're not going to tolerate that. 
And so this term slander, I know about the slander of those, um, is probably referring to some Jews who were accusing the Christians um, of not worshiping the emperor. Okay, and so if that happens, then the authorities are going to come and uh, persecute them. Now, why would the Jews do that? Well, some probably some of the um, you know, the Christians had obviously come from Jewish backgrounds and were had converted, which now upset the Jewish leaders. That would be one reason. Um, Christians were certainly viewed as people who distorted the Jewish law. So there's another reason, and then. Uh, maybe the most egregious was that they were confessing Jesus as the divine Messiah. And to them, this is a peasant who uh, suffered a criminal's death. And to worship somebody like that from a Jewish mindset was ridiculous. And so they were just really opposed to that, that they would somehow call that person God, or at least equal with God the Father. So all of those reasons could have contributed to this persecution that was going on. Uh, but the Lord is pretty explicit about who actually is doing the opposing. You know, he says, you know, both these people who were the Nicolaitans, which we talked about last week, and then also the uh, false apostles Balaam and Jezebel, they're all these people claimed to be Jews in some way or another. <clears throat> they claimed that they were the children of Abraham. But in reality, because they were so opposed to the church and to its message, God is labeling them as, a, as basically this is a synagogue carrying out the activities of God's supreme adversary, which is Satan. And so that's why he refers to them as a synagogue of Satan. It's just a group in opposition to God persecuting God's people, the Christians. Then it says, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, when you look at all of the letters in Revelation, the only references to external issues in any of these seven letters all deal with suffering. That's the one issue that's, in, that's common to all of them that mention anything that, that is external to the church. And so, you know, this obviously this persecution by the Roman authorities is directly connected to the Jewish slander we just talked about. And so this continued on for a long while because um, Polycarp uh, was not martyred until I think 156 or thereabout, middle of the, the second century. And so, um, you know, that this has continued on through this period, and even though it started... Uh, in you know, roughly around 60 or 65. So Jesus is reassuring his people not to fear this, but telling them, hey, this is coming from the devil, our adversary. And so he tells them a couple of things. He says, first of all, that they're going to suffer for 10, 10, day, 10 days. 10 days. A disagreement about this number. Does this mean a literal 10 days? Most of the scholars that I read uh, indicated that they believe it symbolized a, a small, limited period of time. So they were less inclined to think of it as 10 literal days and more as um, a shorter period of time. But, I mean, it, it's not saying that it wasn't uh, 
just 10 days. Could be either. And even though the imprisonment is going to be limited perhaps to this time, it's still possible that martyrdom could be part of that. And that was a very real and a very probable outcome of this persecution. Now, it was sort of interesting. We know about this in some detail because of some letters that have survived that time. And they were letters from um, a guy named uh, Pliny the Younger, P-L-I-N-Y. He was the imperial magistrate that was appointed by the emperor Trajan. Essentially, he was a provincial governor of this whole area, okay? And so he, um, he writes to Trajan to ask him, I'm, I'm kind of not sure what to do with these Christians. <coughs> Let me read you a little bit of the letter. It's pretty interesting. <clears throat> he says, this is Pliny writing to Trajan. He says, meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated them as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and third time, threatening them with punishment Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that, whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. Of course, unless that applies to worship of the emperor, then stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy is a good thing, right? There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. Um, and I'm not going to read this whole section because it's fairly long. But essentially he has a bust of Trajan brought in. And he asks the, uh, these people who um, claim that they weren't Christians to worship this. Um, and so it's just it's really fascinating. He even has... Um, He then goes on to say at one point, accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was. This is about whether people were truly saying that they weren't Christians any longer and what they did by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. So so anyway, he then goes on to say how he postponed his investigation pending Trajan's response. Right. So here is Trajan's response to Pliny. You observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians. For it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proven guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. So, very uh, sympathetic towards those who repent and come back the other way, right? You know, he's like, well, you may have been a Christian, but I'm not anymore. Long live Trajan, right? And so at that point, you're, you're free and clear. But if you stick to your guns, 
and continue to confess Christ, then you were definitely going to be persecuted in some way. I will give you life as your victor's crown. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Well, Smyrna was a place that was actually pretty famous for the athletic games that they had there. And so the crown that is being referred to is not kind of a royal crown, the way we think of them uh, in other parts of Scripture, but it's the idea of this garland or a wreath that's awarded to someone who has won an athletic contest. And see, the value is not in the article itself, it's, but it's what it symbolizes, right? And in this case, it's resurrection life that's given by Jesus to the believer. And so this, the faithful Christian, he goes on to say, who overcomes this opposition and temptation shall not be hurt by the second death. All right, what's the second death? Okay, I think we can explain that. And it's the, the fact that this was said to a first century church kind of helps us understand not only this, but something else that we find later on in Revelation. And if you, if you were to go all the way back into chapter 20 in Revelation 20 verse 6, it states that those who are not hurt by the second death are the same as those who partake of the first resurrection and that they are priests and kings with Christ, a blessing that John has already affirmed to them to be a present reality. So, I mean, this is what's going on now. And so, necessarily so, therefore, the first resurrection can't refer to the physical resurrection at the end of the world. You follow? So, it, rather, it's got to be what Paul was talking about in his epistle to the Ephesians when he says, and this is kind of a compilation of a, a couple of his thoughts, and you were dead in your trespass to sins, but God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. All right? So that's the first resurrection, what we're talking about here. And so all of us, are partakers in that first resurrection, right? We've been cleansed from the first death that occurred in Adam. And the one who conquered death through physical resurrection, being Jesus, promises life to all of us who can overcome in this life. All right, so what do we make of all this? Well, really, if you look at the Bible, God's people have always been challenged to follow him faithfully, right? I mean, that's a story of the Old Testament. There's so much falling away and coming back and falling away and coming back. And, you know, if you read Kings and Chronicles, the, the whole good king, bad king thing reads like a roller coaster. Good king, bad king, good king, bad, you know. And so they were constantly back and forth with, you know, idols and worshiping the true God. Um, we're not supposed to seek out persecution. You know, that's, and you think about, uh, when I think of that, I always think of the, that, um, uh, what was that movie called? The Tom Hanks movie that was off the book that was so controversial. <coughs> The Vinci Code, thank you. 
If you remember in the very first part of that movie, you see this guy who's flogging himself. You know, he's whipping his back and so forth. Those were people that believed in that that somehow made them holier, right? That was, that was a good thing to do. You, you wanted to suffer for, for Jesus' sake. Well, I don't think that's right. <laughs> um, we're not supposed to seek it out, but we're not supposed to avoid it either. That's the other side of this. And, you know, we're told pretty clearly to expect opposition. Paul, the apostle, suffered a lot. And he flatly says that everyone who wants to live a godly life in, in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so throughout this book of Revelation, God is calling his people to this kind of faithful endurance that needs to be present in their lives. Um, and because of Jesus, we have hope in something that's beyond where our situation today. And it's one of the primary themes of the entire New Testament that talks about that hope that is there in the midst of any kind of trial that we're undergoing today. So how can we sort of apply this? What are some thoughts there? Well, I think first of all, the idea that you know, even if we are materially poor, what matters is that we are relationally and spiritually rich. This is a really hard teaching as one of the uh, un unnamed folks in scripture you know, said in one passage, I can't pull it up, but they was like, this is a hard teaching. Well, this is too. We live in this consumer-oriented, materialistic culture, and we recognize that one of the greatest threats to that is this whole idea of a love for money and a love for materialism. And so, what do we do with that? You know, the faithfulness of the church at Smyrna was costing them. It literally was costing them. They were in poverty because of this. And sometimes this kind of ridicule takes an economic form. And so Christians today have to be alert to the power and the subtlety of this kind of a challenge. So the key question for all of us, I think, that we've got to wrestle with is, how do you measure true wealth? You know, it's not up to me to tell you. You have to sort of come to that conclusion on your own. But you need to think through that and say, you know, what is it that's really important here? Is it my big bank balance? Or is it the fact that <laughs> Carmen's providing editorial content back there <laughs> to you too but seriously how do we think about what is wealth so I mean that's something that I you know would encourage everyone here to sort of take home with you and, and ponder that and see where that goes uh, secondly the obvious thought is that those who follow Jesus can expect some kind of an opposition or persecution to happen. You know, I think a lot of the times we, we have this expectation um, that 
the gospel maybe or somehow just Christianity means that we're going to be rescued or delivered from all the hardships that happen. Um, in, some, in some cases, Western Christians even believe that we're supposed to be exempt somehow from all of this. Um, and I mean, the, you know, what we term persecution and what some others term persecution, very different things, right? Well, several years ago, there was a pastor who had helped to lead a tour in Turkey of all of the churches that were on that, of the churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. So this was a tour guy. Uh, was a pastor, but they um, hired a local tour guide to kind of help them negotiate all of this. And so it was the last night of this tour, and they were uh, in Izmir, which was ancient Smyrna, and they were having dinner at a pretty nice hotel. And so the guide that they had hired had been in the U.S. for about 10 years, so he spoke, you know, he spoke English very well. And so he started to ask them questions um, about Christianity. And so the pastor says to him, well, you're a follower of Islam. If you died tonight, I've heard this one before, right? If you died tonight, would you be sure that you could stand in the presence of Allah? No, he replied. There are five things that Muslims should do, and I've only done two out of the five. So they began to talk about the gospel. And they talked about it, you know, long into the night. So he was obviously very curious and was a seeker. And so finally, as they're about to part company, the pastor says to him, look, you know, I can tell that you're serious about this conversation we're having. And it wouldn't be right or it wouldn't be faithful of me not to ask you right now if you would like to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And the Muslim man said, you don't know what you're asking me to do. Do you know what would happen if I did that? If I announced it to anybody, my wife would leave me, my family would disown me, my boss would fire me, I may want to leave and go back to the United States, but the government would not give me an exit visa. I'd give up everything. You go back home tomorrow. I would not expect you to support me, and I would starve to death in my own culture. And as far as the pastor knows, he did not trust Christ that night. But there are people who have made that decision and have suffered all of that loss and endured all of those hardships because they're followers of Jesus. A lot of times we, we kind of go to Romans 8.28 as our comfort verse, right? All things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purposes. So that's sort of our escape hatch, right? Everything works together for good. But the problem is that some of us in, interpret that as saying that it's a promise that you'll have a nice little middle class life in a lovely little church 
in a nice little town, and you might even get a membership in a country club. And if you think that, then you're wrong. <laughs> Paul didn't promise that, and nowhere in Scripture does it say anything about that. Right? So the, the part of that verse that people miss is the second part. To them who are called according to his purposes. Right? We love the first part. We just like to go around and say, all things work together for good to them who love God. And we stop there. And we use that as words of comfort sometimes and, and so forth. And I understand the sentiment, but we're really not being true to Scripture if that's all we say, if we don't include the latter half of that to them who are called according to his purposes. Next, we understand that Jesus comforts his suffering people. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in uh, Nazi Germany and uh, he was hung by direct order of Heinrich Himmler on April the 9th, 1945, which was only a short time before the Allies liberated the particular camp that he was in. And he wrote this, Suffering, then, is the badge of the true disciple. A disciple is not above his master. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called to suffer. And so because of that fact, because of that idea that this is part of this life that we're engaged in, we really need to make sure we get the message of this particular letter of what Jesus is saying. And what he's saying in here is that, first of all, we can take comfort in the fact that he is ultimately the Lord of life. Second, we know that he knows what we're going through and he understands it. Third, he acknowledges the spiritual state of those who persecute his people. Right? He's saying they're of the devil. Fourth, he encourages us not to fear which is found all through scripture. Fifth, even though the devil is the one who's doing the persecuting, God is still in control. Sixth, we know that our time of suffering is going to be limited. And then seventh, Jesus promises rewards for faithfulness that far outweigh any suffering that we're going to go through now. And then finally, the great Christian hope is not removal from trouble, but resurrection from the dead. See, the text stresses that Jesus has conquered death and is one day going to raise all of his people from the dead. And as I said earlier, all too often the hope that we have is tied up in this immediate removal from tribulation or persecution when that's really not what God promises. Our hope rests firmly on his ability to give us life if our faithfulness leads to our untimely death. 
And so knowing that this biblical hope extends beyond the grave can't help but encourage greater faithfulness and to bring a deeper sense of comfort because of it. And on, although this kind of sounds contradictory to what's just been said, it's important not that we don't encourage anybody to seek poverty or to somehow pursue perse persecution because they think because of reading this, it's a really good thing. It's not. We just need to focus on Jesus and staying loyal to him and to what he teaches. Um, now that faithfulness can result in suffering, but that's not the goal, right? The other thing that I think just <clears throat> in general about this, this part of the letter um, is that when we start to talk about this Jewish betrayal of Christians, which we're going to see more of, I mean, it's really throughout this, we've got to really avoid what has happened to many in the past of getting this sort of anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish attitude. Um, that's what happened early on, is that they really began to hate the ethnic Jews. Um, and so we, we really got to guard against the tendency to look at this passage and to go, oh, you know, well, you might want to have anything to do with the Jews. Um, but we also have got to make sure that we don't do what is kind of happening somewhat in our culture now, that there is this thinking that Judaism and Christianity are essentially kind of the same thing, right? There's this popular view that is increasing in popularity that Christianity is just nothing more than a branch of Judaism. And I've encountered this in some folks that I've had to deal with, you know, that they... Uh, they want to. They decided that they want to look Jewish and act Jewish and wear, you know, Jewish paraphernalia and so on and so forth. And so, you know, that's not what we're talking about. You know, th that's not Christianity. And in fact, um, if you really think about it, a truly Orthodox Jew would be a Christian because they would believe the Old Testament. Right? Think about that for a little while. <clears throat> we need to appreciate the heritage of the Jewish people, um, but maintain that clear confession that Jesus of Nazareth is both Lord and Messiah. Right? Okay. Big idea. So Jesus is encouraging his church to uh, endure suffering faithfully, knowing that he is able to bring life out of even death. All right? And I don't think there was probably a better example of this than Polycarp, who we mentioned earlier. Um, and there is actually uh, an account of his death. Uh, someone wrote down, and we still have, it's, it's called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. And it is the oldest written account of Christian martyrdom outside of the New Testament. And I'd just like to read a little bit of it. But as Polycarp entered the stadium, there came a voice from heaven. Be strong, Polycarp, and act like a man. 
And no one saw the speaker, but those of our people who were present heard the voice. And then as he was brought forward, there was a great tumult when they heard that Polycarp had been arrested. Therefore, when he was brought before him, the proconsul asked if he were Polycarp. And when he confessed that he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to recant, saying, have you respect for your age? He was 86 at this point in his life. Have you respect for your age? And other such things as they are accustomed to say, swear by the genius of Caesar, repent, say away with the atheists. So Polycarp solemnly looked at the whole crowd of lawless heathen who were in the stadium, motioned toward them with his hand, and then groaning as he looked up to heaven said, away with the atheists. But when the magistrate persisted and said, swear the oath and I will release you, revile Christ, Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Man had it going on until the very end. And I would only hope that all of us would maintain that same kind of faith in the, faith in the face of persecution and perhaps even get the idea that the persecution that we're going through now is nothing compared to what some of these early saints went through who gave their lives literally, for their faith. Amen? Amen.